Morrison wants more migrant workers. Lambie takes on One Nation. Morrison chooses chaos over leadership. And Washington turning manure into gold. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. It is my very great pleasure to be Ben Davison, your co-host of the show, being joined at home in our little study with our little puppy by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author <laughs> of Q and On and On, Bam Badham. Oh my God, it's so great to be here and you know that. I know, and you've been home for a grand total of about 25 minutes. And I we, have, and I we have. have. jumped into recording the show. I am, and the puppy has jumped into my arms. And I'm so happy to have this little puppy on my stomach. Let me tell you. Hello, little man. Yes. We're all very glad to have you home. And what a huge, huge week it has turned out to be in Australian politics. And, you know, I'm sure there's other things going on around the globe, but we're not going to get too much into that today because there's just... So much happening here at home, Van. There is rather a lot happening, Ben. It's been quite an energetic week. I did the Today Show this morning. Yes, I saw that. Yes. Well, I mean, you have to. Um, (laughs) It was me against Matt Canavan, my favourite senator, the Minister for Cosplay and Coal Dust. And, yes, it was extraordinary to hear somebody arguing against vaccine mandates when this whole global pandemic health crisis has decimated economies and destroyed people's lives for two years now. Him going, well, this only thing that we've got that could actually stop or impede this is a thing we shouldn't do was kind of extraordinary for me, really. And uh, people who watched that particular segment may have noticed I got a bit cranky. Yes, well, we'll we'll get to Matt Canavan because he is one of a group of rebel, uh, so-called rebel MPs and senators that Morrison has failed to bring into line during this sitting week. It is, of course, the final sitting fortnight for 2021. People may have seen uh, Laura Tingle on 7.30 last night talking about how Morrison's dysfunction leads some backbench Liberal MPs to believe there'll be an election as soon as humanly possible in 2022. But of course, there are some things that are supposed to be on the agenda for this parliamentary sitting. Uh, And part of that is, of course, Morrison's desire to increase the number of migrant workers coming to Australia. So Van, before we dive into this, I just want to clarify some things for people because there's been some good news reporting around this. We've talked about this a little bit before. There's been some new polling come out in The Age. Uh, And so Morrison is quoted in a piece that's out today saying that there'll be roughly 200,000 new migrant workers coming to Australia in December and January. So that's in the next... Yeah, I, I couldn't quite... I read that three times, but it... He, he talks about them taking up the visas in December and January, uh, which is a huge influx of people, given that our pre-pandemic intake of migrant workers was only 160,000 a year. We're talking about, you know, if you, if you split that evenly, it's 100,000 a month. Uh, polling shows 58% of people want lower levels of uh, migrant worker intake, want to return to that 160,000 level uh, and 7% uh, 
didn't seem to um, understand the question, <laughs> but that's pretty common in polling. Like this is a this Ben is loves a- polling. Everyone, one of his favourite things. It's just <laughs> absolutely just juiced him with love for humanity. Polling and focus groups, two of Ben's just most pleasant pastimes. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think the polling shows and that we we know is that migrant workers are more easily exploitable. Sally McManus had an article about this uh, in the nine Fairfax papers, I think yesterday or the day before she wrote an op-ed about it. There's been case after case of exploitation of migrant workers. We're starting to see in some industries workers push back a bit, right? So like hospitality we've talked about before, where you know, the idea that the boss sends you a text at 11 o'clock the night before a 6 a.m. start was the norm is now being pushed back against, which I think is quite right. I think people should be able to say, hang on a minute, I've got caring responsibilities, I've got to take my kid to school, you know, I've made plans that day because you didn't give me a roster. You know, there's, there's an element there where people are able to push back. Migrant workers, of course, regardless of anything else, they usually come here without a deep network of family already in place, without deep community connections. And so, and and of course, with the constant threat of being disconnected from their employment and thus deported. So there is a much greater capacity for the employer to impose on them conditions that they wouldn't otherwise. Oh, but we've seen this. I mean, a couple of years ago, the CFMU found temporary migrant workers who were put in unsafe, literally packed in like fish into unsafe accommodation. We've seen this with exploited farm workers um, who come in through temporary migrant visa worker schemes where women get sexually harassed and are made to feel like they have no right to complain, are sexually abused, um, sexually assaulted at work. There was that amazing Four Corners expose a few years ago about temporary migrant visa workers who were forced into like just squalor, mm. like living conditions provided by the employer that they were then forced to pay for. Like there are these enormous loopholes that allow people to treat like to treat that labor force as completely exploitable. And let's be I just want to be really clear. I support migration. My dad was a migrant. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, Ben's mum was a migrant. We are very pro-migration around here. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to come to this country and become an Australian, like, that's great. That's You're in. Yep. Like, this is a wonderful, wonderful country and a great community. It has provided sanctuary and comfort to literal millions. And if you want to be part of that vision, if you want to be part of a progressive democratic society like Australia, like, I'm, I'm on board. Right? I don't like exploitation and I don't like a mechanism within the economy that takes a vulnerable group of people, pays them less than they're worth, gives them the impression that there are conditions that they're entitled to and gives them the impression that they're not entitled to those conditions. I'm not into the idea that people work under the threat of of deportation. I'm not into the idea that people are crammed into squalid living facilities like sardines or sexually assaulted at work. That is not okay. I also really love local jobs. I'm so pro-local jobs. And I wrote an article about this for The Guardian the other day about spare capacity in the Mm. labour market. There are currently 200,000 Australians 
hmm, 200,000. Where have I yeah. heard that number before? <laughs> 200,000 like Australians people who live in this country who want to work more, who want to have jobs and can't get the jobs that suit their need to work more because they have caring commitments because they care for elderly, elderly relatives or children or people in the households with disabilities. And as a carer myself, I am my mother's carer now. The, the complex, the complexity of being her carer and working, it is really, really difficult. And it, it, like for people who are in even more complex circumstances, mm, mm. and we now they call they call my generation of people in their forties the panini generation. They used to call us the sandwich generation, but then they decided we were so squashed we were the panini generation because we're this generational anomaly where people are caring for children and elderly parents at the same time and doing these unbelievable juggles. Those people want to work and Ben. Maybe tell everybody why those people can't work with their caring commitments. Oh, because the the rosters aren't set. The bosses don't tell them in advance what they're going to be doing. There isn't sufficient support in aged care. There isn't su- sufficient places and, and support for childcare. Uh, the NDIS hasn't been rolled out properly. We've seen lots of problems in all of these caring all of these caring professions that have been themselves devalued. And I think that's a big part of the problem is that we have a government in the Morrison government that doesn't value early childhood education as an economic good. It doesn't see that this is about facilitating and unlocking the potential of those children and the potential of their parents into the broader economy. It doesn't see the NDIS as something that unlocks the potential of the workforce, both in terms of the people who are providing the services, but also the people with a disability themselves. And of course, it doesn't say aged care is anything other than a burden. And we saw during the pandemic just how poorly treated, and through the Aged Care Royal Commission, just how poorly treated our elders are. None of those recommendations in the Aged Care Royal Commission around staffing ratios have been put into place. And I heard Annie Butler uh, yesterday on ABC News Radio talking about the need for more nurses. This is Annie Butler, who's the secretary of the ANMF, the Australian Nursing and Midwives yeah, Federation. Who's, you know, great person who really stood up for the fact that we do have good pipelines in Australia for for training nurses, for getting nurses up to speed. And there may be times where we might need to bring people in, but other countries have their own needs too. And there is no workforce planning anymore. Morrison's not planning a workforce for aged care. He's not planning a workforce for the disability sector. He's not planning a workforce for childcare. Ben, Scott Morrison is not planning for five minutes into the future. He just makes it up as he goes along. And I think the whole country knows that now. And, And this idea that because... We have a government at the moment that is unable to plan five minutes into the future, let alone 12 months down the track. We should throw open the doors and allow people to come to Australia to be exploited, to undermine local conditions, local wages. I mean, we have to remember, too, it's only been less than a couple of months since the Australian Workers' Union won a minimum wage for farm workers, $25 an hour. You know, that that win means there's supposed to be a flaw in how little big agribusiness can pay pick pickers, whether they're fruit pickers or berry pickers or whatever, right? We know what happens when temporary migrant workers or backpackers 
get put on farms. They get exploited and it happens again and again and again. And yeah, okay, there are some good employers out there and we all know a good farmer, right? Like we've all met good farmers. But we also know lots of faceless multinational corporations, some of which are agribusinesses. Yes. Where no human being seems to make any of the decisions. The decisions are just made on the basis of quantifying efficiencies and that means that exploitable labour gets exploited. So imagine imagine an Australia, just for a moment, imagine an Australia where where we sit down and we go, the agricultural sector in this area is going to need this many workers and they've got to pay a minimum of $25 an hour. We're going to need to provide childcare in this sector, in this area. We're going to need to provide aged care in this area. We know that regional Australia has a very aging population. We know we're going to need disability support. Let's get those workers to come to these areas. We could regionalise Australia, which the Nats always bang on about and seem to only ever do as a, me- as a way of going, we're going to pick up this department of the Commonwealth and we're going to dump it in Armidale or we're going to dump it in this marginal seat. Well, just think it through a bit more, folks. Oh, there's no interest in regionalising Australia. I mean, we've spent... I mean, obviously, we, we live in regional Australia and we've spent time in other towns around the country and in different states. And, of course, I've spent a lot of time in the Riverina and, you know, it's a wonderful community where the community literally has to fight for everything that's good about it. And you get people like, oh, my God, I've forgotten his name, Michael McCormack. Michael McCormack. He used to be the Deputy Prime Minister like 10 minutes ago. And just the interest in developing educational opportunities, nah. Like developing cultural opportunities, nah. Like there's no long-term investment in seats like that, even when they they are supposed to have some of the most powerful politicians in the country, and, even if no and, one can remember their name. And they've got Darren Maguire trying to pork barrel it. Yeah, Darren Maguire. And it's just like gun clubs are not the future of regional Australia. No. It is. Care services, educational investments, giving people a reason to live in the reasons, in the region, in the reasons, in the regions. I mean, I did an article for Bloomberg last year that talked about the sea changes and tree changes and the fact that the pandemic was driving up house prices in regional Australia because people were fleeing the cities mm. and thinking, well, if I have to work from home anyway, I should, I can get a cheaper house and one with a view. And the kind of pressures that put on local infrastructure that hasn't been invested in. Yeah. And I spoke to a woman who had moved out to the regions from Melbourne, from inner city Melbourne, because she'd had a kid and, you know, she wanted, basically she just wanted to raise her kids as a single parent in a house with a yard. Yep. And the problem was that her kid um, had some medical issues and the health resources weren't there in time for her to get the intervention she needed to minimise her kid's problems. So she ended up going back to Melbourne. And this is not an uncommon story. No. Like there has been there is has been a starving out of the regions of the infrastructure needed to actually be sustainable communities. And there's an effect with that on jobs. And this is this is the point too, right? Like the union movement has talked about this for a long time around TAFE and universities, around apprenticeships in the regions and how important that is, how important TAFEs are to making sure that there are quality early childhood educators, that there are quality nurses and personal care assistants, that there are quality aged care workers and disability support workers and, and giving people a sense that you can live in the region, get trained in the region and have a good career. And I, 
And I do encourage, we always encourage people through our show to join their union. Join your union. And and it's not backslash, fam. We got we got we got some audience feedback about the way we uh, give people the URL. It's australianunions.org.au slash W O W. Wow. Oh, okay. Not backslash. I was the, I got this on social media from people. So look, we do encourage feedback to the show. <laughs> we do. We always strive to a more perfect podcast. So thank you, everyone. That's right. A more perfect podcast. Well, I think you know what this what this migration issue is is really becoming totemic of or symbolic of is how do we create a more perfect Australia and. The kind of slapdash, just patch it up, let big business deal with it, we'll give them what they want, and they'll sort it out approach. More and more Australians, clearly 58% of Australians in this piece of polling, don't think that's the right way to go. You know, that we should actually say, you know, instead of these large Maryvale style hospitality billion dollar empires with giant pubs everywhere running a automated rostering system that tells you six hours in advance when you need to be uh, on the floor actually have a conversation consult with your staff do the work that managers are supposed to do, and that is manage the situation, manage the rostering, manage the fact that your workforce are people who have lives that are complex and intersect. Working people have lives? What kind of socialism is this? <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not like we're not saying, I'm not saying that we want managers to become therapists and somehow or another you know, solve all these problems for people. What I'm saying is if managers do their job and they manage the rostering and they manage the various inputs into producing the palmer or providing the care and government does its job and plans the workforce. He means palmer in the schnitzel sense, not in the <laughs> That's right. fatuous billionaire sense. Yeah, no, we, we need a whole different way to manage that. But And government does its job of managing workforce planning and making sure there's a pipeline of skills development. You know, if everybody does their job, society can function properly. It's when some people go, I don't want to do my job. I just want to make a lot of money and sit on my big fat palmer chair. (laughs) Then I just want to sit on my big fat chair. Then that's where we have a problem. Well, I mean, the problem we have is we have a government who are not particularly interested in doing the job at all. I mean, this is the thing. This is so weird for me because I'm older than you. I'm older than Ben. Everyone, I'm older. Everybody knows. And I grew and I, you know, came of age. I was a child and a teenager and young adult during the Hawke-Keating years. And it, it is kind of extraordinary to revisit things like the comedy shows that were produced at that time, shows like Australia, You're Standing In It, The Dingo Principle and The Gillies Report that actually talked about how the economy was being managed and policy initiatives and visions of Australia and creative nation and working nation and Australia is part of Asia and all of these things that were happening during Hawke and Keating. And we were talking about it as a country all the time, these massive debates about structuring the future and what that was going to look like. And 
you know, some of it in like I disagree with. Yeah. Like deregulating the economy was a problem. Letting the banks off the leash was a problem. Hex was a problem. I think edu- personally, I think education should have stayed free because it's a social good. Medicare, on the other hand, was fantastic. Yeah. That was a really, really good thing to happen. But we and talked about it, record investment in the arts, all these things that happen. And I just look at the Morrison government and I'm like, what are you guys doing? Because there's no labour planning. We don't look at the shape of the workforce in this country anymore. We don't plan for it. We don't look at integrated educational strategies around the kind of workers we need. If there's a problem, we'll just import them from somewhere else. We'll We'll just create new visa categories and ship in labour and when it's, you know, inconvenient we'll ship it out again. No pathways to citizenship. We're not creating opportunities for people who work here to become citizens because if they were citizens, Ben, they'd have rights. Can you imagine? They might vote. Um, and, and I mean, this is this is one of the fundamental issues, right? Because it is, it's the Morrison sort of can-do capitalism approach. And, can, can do and, and crazy the, visa categories. Can but, do but we've had exploitation. Such, can do. We've had such a period of of uh, time before the pandemic, really, where the idea that government gets in the way rather than does things, and people ask the question: Well, what can government do about? job security or what can government do about wages there's actually heaps of things government can do <laughs> yes and i think the pandemic has shown people again that government can do things and and if government if government can bail out every company in the country then government can also tell every company in the country you've got to make casuals permanent after 12 months it can tell every company in the country Mm, you've got to lift your wages by 3%. You have to provide workplace childcare. Like, you meet yes. these criteria. You have a workforce that is comprised like this. It is your responsibility to put these things in place. And there's a role for, like, a relationship between government and unions and business. Yeah. A tripartite system of planning, which they do in various European countries, you know, the rich, successful ones. I just, I, it just does my head in. I'm just like, what does... What does Scott Morrison actually do? And this is the, I mean, we know well, he I, does, makes curries, he goes bowling. Well, can I also just add? Does a bit of barre. Can I also just add that this idea that Morrison wants government out of people's lives is a total nonsense. Total, absolute, it's a lie. Yeah, tell that to anyone on Job Seeker. Yeah. Really? So you want government out of people's lives. Does that mean we're not doing doll diaries anymore? Is well, that Does that mean we don't have to go to job network providers? Can we not be under surveillance all the time. It is the biggest pile of steaming nonsense that this country's been subjected to in some time. And it's also demonstrably untrue. Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister. His two ministers, he has he has two ministers, he has ministers who are shareholders of Australia Post, because Australia Post is owned by the government. Australia Post also owns Star Trek, by the way. If you ever get a delivery from Star Trek, that's just a different brand of Australia Post now. I thought you said Star Trek, and I was going to go, that's the weirdest thing since I found out Steve Bannon gets money from Seinfeld. No, no, Star Trek. Star, Star Trek, Trek, Trek. Largest delivery network in the country, right? By far. The idea that government should get out of your life. Scott Morrison intervened to get the CEO of Australia Post sacked, right? Intervened. Basically made it impossible for his liberal stacked board to ignore his demand to sack the CEO over some watches. Personally, I didn't care about the watches. It was in lieu of a bonus. The people who run the post offices had been delighted. It sealed a big deal with the banks that made sure the people who ran the post offices could pay their bills. Mm, and that regional post services would collapse. Continue. Yeah. 
people got some watches. Who cares? Well, this became a big problem for Scott Morrison because he can't handle the pressure. He cannot handle the pressure. Where are the jobs, Scott? You own Australia Post. Everybody's sitting around waiting for parcels to be delivered. Everybody's talking about how they're not going to get their Christmas presents on time. Why isn't the Prime Minister intervening in Australia Post to hire more people? Yeah, because they don't. Because he doesn't think, frankly, I think it's becoming very clear that Scott Morrison doesn't think about these things. This is what I mean. Like there is, there is no plan. There is no policy vision. There's no Australia in 10 years or Australia in 20 years. The only thing they seem to really understand is like growth of markets that comes from trade deals. I think that's about... But even that, I've got to tell you. It's hardly sophisticated. It just seems to be like flogging more like cheese to China or something. Like it's... Usually it's about uh, usually it's about primary resources. Look, we we should we should move on. We should move on because we're going to come back to Morrison and the chaos of his government shortly. Van, one of the things that's happened this week is that because it's one of the last sitting weeks of the year, uh, second last sitting week of the year, uh, there's a lot of focus on Canberra, and Jackie Lambie gave an incredible speech this week. Oh, didn't she? Um, really taking on the anti-vaxxers and taking on One Nation. And taking on Morrison as well, you will notice. Like, really, I think, you know, if I could sum it up, I'd sum it up as freedom is not freedom from consequences was was very much sort of the, the core thing here. And be an adult, get the vaccine because we need it to all survive, right? Yeah, it's the only weapon we've got. It is the only weapon we have to fight the pandemic is a high vaccination rate. And I just want to be very clear, right? It it is possible to get coronavirus if you are vaccinated, but it is much harder to get coronavirus if you are vaccinated. And you're much less likely to get seriously sick. You're much less. And not only that, but it shortens the transmission window. So you are much less likely to pass it on to other people. Yeah. All right. These are all the reasons why we're getting the vaccine. So the latest line from the anti-vaxxers, which I know because they basically attack my Facebook page every day now. Pointlessly, I delete you all. (laughs) I have filters. Um, is that they're like, oh, well, just, what's the point of getting it? It doesn't even stop you getting coronavirus. And it's like, but it stops you dying from it and it stops you from killing grandma with it. Well, this was this was sort of, I think, you know, we'll get to the chaos in the Senate, but Jackie Lambie really... Nailed it. Nailed it, absolutely nailed it. And really part of it was in response to this uh, One Nation. Do you so- want to talk people through what... Pauline and friends were doing. So what they basically did was they said to the government that they would not vote for any piece of legislation until the government had allowed them to move a move a bill, move a motion. I'm not sure exactly that which technical thing they used, um, but basically to override states' vaccine mandates, where the state governments had implemented mandates for people to get a vaccine before they could do certain work. Now, those mandates are all based on health advice. Every state that has them has gone through that process. Um, And, you know, the vast majority, 99% of Australians who need to get a vaccine to do their job have gone and got a vaccine, right? Um, And if they have a genuine medical reason why they can't get a vaccine, then they're fine. So there's no real issue here, except that there are a very vocal very outspoken, very loud group of anti-vaxxers... Whipped up into a frenzy by relentless foreign propaganda... ..who demand 
that who demand and insist that this is somehow destroying the jobs of thousands of Australians. It's not. It's simply, that's not actually happening. So Hanson got together with a bunch of coalition senators um, whose names I'm not going to mention because that's what they want. They're actually only really in it for the fame. They know they're not going to get this thing through the Senate. And even if they did, they know they're not going to get it through the House, right? So It is. I believe somebody said on the Today Show this morning to Matt Canavan, meaningless gesture politics. Exactly right. So, of course... They had to debate it because the government is weak and Morrison is weak and he wants other things done in the next two weeks. So and he's playing both sides. Yeah. Like, let's be honest. Like, he made those comments about, I want people to be able to get a coffee in Queensland. So he took the federal ICAC off the bill. Uh, he took a range of other things off the agenda, shunted them either off entirely or down the list so that Pauline Hanson and her crew of misfits and no-good nicks could pontificate and send messages and signals to their QAnon fantasy friends about anti-vax awesomeness. Jackie Lambie wasn't having a bar of it. Jackie was not having a bar of it. Was not up for it. And there's this beautiful scene, if you can find the video, where, because Pauline Hanson, being from Queensland, is zooming in, right? She's videoing in. Uh, And there's this beautiful scene where Jackie Lambie's standing in the Senate going, just grow up, basically going, grow up. We need this to happen. This is how we keep each other safe. And Paula Hanson on the video behind her head. But Jackie Lambie's totally right. And here's the kicker, right? Here's the kicker. Here is how far the right... And the far right, like Pauline Hanson, have fallen in Australian politics. And the no-good nicks in the Liberal Party and the National Party who have backed this play, people who have got up and given speeches in the Liberal Party... The grumpies. Who... This is how far they've fallen. They have circulated Jackie Lambie's personal phone number on social media, and she has been inundated with sexual abuse, violent threats... All manner, all manner of awful, horrible things. Oh, yeah. So I posted Jackie Lambie's speech the other day because it was brilliant. She nailed it. And she said what needs to be said. Like, grow up. I I just, I find it amazing that we're even still talking about vaccination. And because I see the lines because the anti-vaxxers hit my social medias. I know what all their propaganda lines are. One of them is, oh, it's an experimental vaccine. It's like literally the time for experiment is over. It is the largest single issue of a medical product in history. Yeah. Like hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated. We know that it's a highly effective vaccine. There will probably need to be booster shots, but that's because of the different way that this vaccine works and because we're and dealing with coronavirus. It is not experimental flu viruses, anymore. Flu vaccines are annual. Like. Yeah, flu vaccines are annual. You know, like technology changes, things get updated and the rest of it. But this whole, oh, it's experimental. No, it's not. It's satisfied all of its tests. We have never had so much data about a medical initiative in history like it is just beyond beyond but i on my page when i posted the speech um and they were you know repeating all their stuff you know um the sexism against jackie lambie the venn overlap between anti-vaxxers and misogyny i've got to say looks pretty much like a circle um and women were engaging it as well women can be misogynist which is disappointing um and deplorable and reprehensible but like 
and the threats of violence and the rest of it and the classism demonstrated to Jackie Lambie as if she doesn't have a right because... Jackie Lambie is a veteran. Jackie Lambie has served in uniform for yeah, this country. Yeah, she has. And one of the most disgusting things about sharing her phone number is that Jackie gives her number to the veteran, the veterans who she meets and works with. So veterans, a lot of whom are in extremely marginal and vulnerable situations because they are, mm. you know veterans um she has had to change her number and there are people who won't have that direct line to a senator anymore because one nation wants to play the politics of intimidation those of you who haven't read my q book yet you should because because you know it's my book and that'd be great but you should read it because i talk about the tactics these people use all the time and what has happened to jackie lambie is she has been doxxed she has had private information um released on the internet yeah. In order to be weaponized against her, in this case, her phone number. And the the scumbags are saying, oh, well, you know, she released her number. She had her number on a press release or something like two years ago. Yeah. Long buried in the internet. Yeah. And, and not about a controversial topic. And not about a controversial topic either. And yet this – so this is – we know that this is – yeah. The the abuse is not coming because of a phone number she released two years ago. It's coming because Malcolm Roberts published it on Facebook. Yeah, that's to right. To whip up, you know, his base. And, and let's be really clear about that too. Like the level of, I would suggest, cowardice in the way that he has approached this. So someone who is a supporter of his posted it and then he shared that. Yeah. And... And, oh, it wasn't and now, me. Yeah, and now it's, it. oh, I just shared what other people have And we don't support the... And the, just the, the refusal to own up to the fact that they were angry that Jackie Lambie stood up in the Senate and her speech blew away, blew away and out of the water every single one of those stooges, those apologists for foreign propagandists who got up in the Senate and wanted to make Australians less safe blew them out of the water and they were angry about it. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and they wanted revenge. And that's what and it comes down to. And the standard tactic of these people is intimidation because they can't win the popular argument. No. I mean, this is the thing. So with Matt Canavan on um, today, this morning, and he was like, oh, I'm here to represent constituents. And it's like, mate, the overwhelming majority of your constituents, the people of Queensland, are vaccinated. Yeah. Like absolutely in thundering numbers. If there was a vote to elect vaccination, no one would say, or you, no one would see hide nor hair of you again, Matt. Like, it's it's over, buddy. And, like, the because they can't win the popular support, because everything Jackie Lambie said, and I've had massive political arguments with Jackie Lambie. Yeah, yeah, I don't, agree, with, I don't agree with everything she said. No, don't, like, let's not Medivac, this. for example, yeah, you and been, I were quite in favour. Yeah, yeah, Jackie Lambie, yeah. not so much. But she was dead right, and she spoke for the majority opinion, whether you're left, right or indifferent in this country, overwhelmingly you support vaccination and you do not want someone unvaccinated wandering around your workplace or because they're all in a space where people are obliged to congregate because they are a dangerous safety risk and could give you or someone you love and especially someone you love who in my case is on an oncology ward um coronavirus so she absolutely nailed it. But the tactic becomes if you can't win the argument, you can't win the majority, you try and drive that person out of the public debate to silence them, to silence that opinion and send a message to anyone who might back them in that you will come for them and you will hurt them. And that's 
what this number releasing is about, that no one is safe, that a senator's number can be released and if a senator can be, you know, attacked, humiliated and harassed, so can you. And I watch what they do on my Facebook all the time. They're constantly attacking my followers because they're trying to silence people from speaking. I had a woman who I happen to know personally who's a very senior nurse who was writing in praise of the Lambie speech saying so many healthcare workers in this country have been dying to hear someone get this passionate about this issue because, you know, we have been carrying the community in healthcare terms for two years and it is outrageous, the attacks and the denigration on healthcare that's been going on from these extremists, extremists influenced by foreign propaganda, and that's exactly who they are. And the way that the, the scumbags attacked her was just, it was outrageous and it was outrageous and it and it's a tactic again it's a foreign imported tactic oh right? yeah of course because in places like america and the uk where you don't have compulsory voting this is a means of changing the changing the dynamic changing the equation because if you can convince 25% of people not to turn out to vote because to it, intimidate them out of voting yeah, through threats of violence because it's too frightening because because people go you know I just, I really don't want to be spat at or harassed or have things thrown at me or I'm a bit worried about violence at the polls. And you see news reports in the lead up to elections talking about violence at the polls and harassment and all these sorts of things. That kind of narrative feeds these extremists. It gives them comfort and it gives them power. Suckle. It gives them suckle because they're able to effectively intimidate people out of the political process. In Australia, we have compulsory voting. And thank God we do. Uh, Whatever God you pray to, no matter how many heads, tails, arms, faces it may have. Or the blank empty space that that you have instead of a God, which is also fine. We're a multicultural society. Give praise to that because compulsory voting means that these tactics can be effective about getting people, individuals, out of the public debate. And we really... I don't think that's going to work with Jackie Lambie. No. I think... I saw Jackie Lambie's written an op-ed today in the New Daily, so I think, if anything, this has just fired her up more. Given the fact she's worn a uniform and served her country, I have a feeling... Malcolm Roberts is not the great threat to um, her. Yeah, I'm just like... <laughs> it, it would be wrong to entertain, even for a moment, a fantasy of a... You know, a, a genuine physical altercation between Malcolm Roberts and Jackie Lambie, that would be bad. That would be bad. And obviously that because is... Because an old would, man would get very hurt. <laughs> totally would. Ah, she'd yes. split him limb from limb. That would be a bad thing to think about, everybody. It, he's a, he's, he is a late period Queensland Napoleon. I just um, remember another senator who was in the chamber with Malcolm Turnbull, with Malcolm Turnbull, with Malcolm Roberts, described him to me as the loopiest... That says a lot about that. The loopiest. <laughs> given that chamber. But this is why, again, these voter ID laws, which have now been bumped off, uh, appear to have been bumped off the agenda, uh, are so, so dangerous as well. You know, Van, I, I want us to talk a little bit about Morrison's decision-making over the last couple of weeks and this week and what it sort of looks like going forward because we've touched on some pretty big issues around uh, around migration, the workplace, uh, around obviously the way our politics works. 
Uh, and I think one of the one of the things that we need to think about is Morrison has chosen chaos over leadership. He really has. He he has decided not to be the nation's leader, and instead is allowing this chaos to engulf the, the political system, our political processes, the parliament. I mean, George Christensen has made a big song and dance about not voting for government legislation in the House unless certain things are put into the Religious Discrimination Bill. But there's actually nothing in the House for him to vote on. And this kind of chaos... Just wrangling the dog in the background, everybody, if you're worried about the noise. This kind of chaos that's allowed to reign uh, has real-life impacts, doesn't it? Because it... It actually impacts on people's planning. Are you perfectly comfortable, Germanicus? <laughs> it impacts on things like how we get to net zero, on transitions. But they don't, they don't want fuels. to make this. I mean, I've been trying to work out why is this happening. One, Morrison is an extremely weak leader. I mean, he is. He's not really interested in the Laura, job. Laura, Laura Tingle said yesterday on 7.30, we made it very clear that they... Liberal backbenchers are openly talking about Peter Dutton challenging him before the, before the election. Oh, good lord! You so know. that time honoured liberal strategy. I mean, fair play to them. You know, they spent years attacking Labor on the basis of Labor changing leaders, and they've had more than Labor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great! But I have been trying to work it out as a strategy, and because I'm just like, how is this going to play? And genuinely, Ben, I think the strategy from Morrison, from what I can work out, and obviously I don't really know how Tories think, I can only guess, is that it's some kind of like mobile army that the chaos is sort of the point. Because I was thinking, how on earth could somebody who's Prime Minister of this country allow those lunatics in the Senate to side with One Nation and to totally derail the legislative agenda and mess everything up? Why is that happening? And I thought about it and I thought, we've spoken on this program before about how the Liberals use diffusion brands. Yeah. So they're called the LNP in Queensland and they're the Liberal Party, but they're also the National Party, but then they're the Coalition and it's... And the Country Liberal Party. And the Country Liberal Party. And they have all of these different brands that they use that, you know, portray different identities. There's that old Australian saying, you always know when there's going to when the liberals are going to call the election because the nationals start calling the liberals the government even though by the way everybody spoiler alert when the liberals are in government so are the nationals they are a coalition the deputy prime minister is always a national if there's a liberal prime minister anyway it was a really i saw a really interesting thing some i can't remember who tweeted it but somebody tweeted so the next election is going to be Albanese-led Labor versus Morrison-led Liberals, Nationals, One Nation, anti-vaxxers, Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly, (laughs) like a real... Yeah, and because this is the thing, like while those like lunatics in the Senate are lunaticking, it gives, it, it sort of creates like another brand. 
So, and this is why Ben is making the point about I'm not going to name them because it's like, oh, I know that guy. I know, you know, Captain yeah. Bozo. Captain Bozo, he stood up for, you know, whatever. Because democratic majorities are made by the accumulation of thin slices. Democratic majorities that win elections are not about one bit appealing with a full set of policies to one big massive people. It's about having a broad arsenal of different appeals to different groups based on what are the most important issues to them. Because we're not a homogenous mass of people. Yeah, we're we all not have a, different interests. Yeah, amazing. We do, and we all have different political red lines and priorities and all yeah. of those things. So you can sort of see like the reason why Morrison has just let go of the leash of those yeah. people is to create an image for them to push in the electorate. And you can see it with people like Matt Canavan when he does his cosplay, when he dusts the coal dust on his face. So somebody worked out it was like photocopy toner that he'd used, I think. I can't oh remember. That might be legally actionable. Maybe it was photocopy toner. Um, but or, he dresses, or maybe it was coal. Or maybe it was coal, yeah, right. Um, or, or maybe it was permanent market. We don't know. I grew up in a coal mining community, so I'm not entirely convinced. So, yeah. um, But also... He dresses up like tool man and whatever when yeah. he's actually an economist who worked for, I think, was it HSBC or? I think it was Deloitte, wasn't it? KPMG. 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 Yeah. Yes, he's an economist. Like he's yeah. not, for, for a global organisation. Doesn't work yeah. in any kind of, for all of his capacity. That's not a thing. Globalist tool. Yeah, so anti globalist. And this is what I mean. Like it's just rank political opportunism. It's branding. Yeah. I'm going to dress up like a coal miner and put on some high-vis and a bit of coal dust photocopy toner and wander around and create, like, it's all branding. And, you know, having met some of these people, which you and I have, like, you often meet people who are quite urbane inner city types who love a latte on the weekend and but then turn around and do this populist, I'm a man of the people kind of opportunistic garbage, like playing to a crowd that is a targeted electoral demographic community and engaging these addicts just to get them on board. And you notice the people who do it too, right? And we, we'll keep talking about Matt Canavan because he's clearly one of these people. Um, they, they And I really enjoyed it this morning. Yeah, and you just, you towed him up. It was beautiful to see. Um, so Matt Canavan does it, is able to do it because he's a senator, right? So you get in our political system, you get these people who are in seats, sometimes lower house seats that are so safe doesn't really matter what they say the bulk of people there are voting on the core brand they're voting labor or they're voting liberal because that's that's a 20 percent safe seat there are fewer and fewer of those so you're starting to see many many more of the upper house members being these diffusion brand these chaos agents to try and and get these really thin slithers. Like the anti-vax movement is less than 3%. But we know, we know that there are, you only need, you know, to knock off Christian Porter, you only need to change 5.5% of the votes to knock off Christian Porter. Mm. You know, these are small, in the end, small slithers of the population you've got to stitch together. So you see parties roll out people like Matt Canavan, who's in the Senate. It doesn't really matter. He's not. He doesn't have to go and convince the people in his street to vote for him because Queensland-wide, the LNP is going to get enough votes to elect at least two senators, and he's in one of those spots. 
he's going to get back in. And if you're a National Party senator, but how because you because of the way that the parties negotiate who gets yeah. to be senator. So the parties pick who are going to be their senators and satisfy their internal factions and with pre-selectors. And how many pre-selection votes do we reckon you need to be a National Party senator maybe from Victoria? Oh, less than 40? Less than 40. Certainly less than 100. Yeah. So if you can get one of those very safe political jobs, that's what they are. And if you're either in a very safe one or if you're a senator, because some of these diffusion brand senators, the ones who are really holding up the Senate now, are at the bottom end of the ticket, right? So You're Amanda Stokers and you're Renix. Yeah, they're at the bottom of the ticket, which means they are going to get some of the vote from the brand, from the main brand. But they're trying to bump up their primaries to keep... So for people who who maybe aren't as across, yep. you know, like preferential voting and multi... <laughs> like the, anyway, anyway, the system that we have. <laughs> the system that we have. So when you, when you number your boxes in the Senate and if you vote above the line, you vote one for the party that you want to get the senators and then two for the second the party that you yeah, could yeah. live with getting senators and so on. So you go downhill. In my family, we always put Fred Nile last. It's a thing. Yeah. So that's why and we fill out the long form for that reason, even if it takes hours. So if hours. you go below the line. You if you go below the line. But if you go above the line, it's it's an allocation on the basis of party. So you're really voting for a party brand. You're not really voting for individuals. What happens is the the person who's number one Liberal and the person who's number one Labor, because of the size of the voting blocks behind those brands, whoever's top of the Senate ticket for either of those parties is going to get elected. Yeah. Like that's just going to happen. And normally number two as And well. usually number two, it will also, they'll be carried there but it gets a, a bit dicey around three. Yeah. What keeps a major political party candidate from the third position? What what keeps them sort of in the the process of exclusion? So the way they count the Senate vote is they knock out the people with the least votes first yeah. and then distribute them. So if only 15 people have voted for, you know, Bozo Dingbat, um, they take those 15 votes, uh, votes and they put them on the piles for wherever those yeah. votes have said two. Okay, so that's so you work from the least popular to accumulate these piles. What keeps people in that count longer is how many primary votes that they get. So this is why the underlined voting becomes really important because they'll get a party vote from the above yep. the line voters. But for people from people like me who fill in every single box to put Fred Nile last, yep. as is the family tradition, um, what happens is they they sort of rely even on this small percentage of people to give them enough primary votes in their own right. That's number one votes next to their name, which you can do if mm. you vote below the line to keep them in the count. So if you're at the bottom, say, of the Liberal National, the LNP ticket in Queensland, you're at the bottom of that ticket and you're unlikely, you're already a senator because through some other mechanism, double dissolution or somebody resigned and you got the gig. Or turned out to be a citizen of another country. One of these things happens. You you need the, the main brand to have a good primary, but you also need to get some of your own votes, right? And you've got to get them from people who aren't already voting for your main brand. That's where you, and probably aren't going to be swayed to vote for Labor. So someone who's not going to vote LNP but isn't voting Labor, 
that's where these people are hunting. Yeah. That's where these people... These are the ponds these people are fishing in, right? They're fishing for votes in the ponds where people don't want to vote Labor. They don't want to vote LNP. They're probably not voting Green. Um, they're probably voting either One Nation or... Palmer. Palmer or Independent or... Australians Against Pedophiles. Apparently we have a political party called that. These very niche groups, these very niche parties. So they're fishing to try and get a higher number from them than they would if they just got the numbers through their own party. And also by playing to the issues of the minor parties as well. Yeah. So say there's an anti-abortion party and, you know, there are various far, like far-right parties who turn up on tickets with anti-abortion um, policies yeah. that you, as number three on the Liberal ticket, would go and negotiate with them about how they want their preferences allocated. You know, that you will support whatever crank crackpot issue these various parties represent. I once went to a meeting of the micro parties and it was one of the weirdest nights of my life. And I, like, have been in the theatre a long time. Yeah, yeah. I've been to a lot of strange events. I went to, like, but- greatest party I ever went to had naked breakdancers and there was literally no way it was more weird than the meeting of the micro parties. It was a very strange day. And yet these are the kind of dynamics that are at work in Senate elections and that's why you get the cosplayers, you know, like Australians for more clowns. You can bet if they were an electoral force that there would be a Liberal who was turning up with a red nose on. Because it does. Some of these Senate positions and some of these, some of the, some of the seats too, like there are, there are marginal seats where these parties will run a candidate, not because they think they're going to win the seat, but because they want to leverage the other party. They want to leverage the other party in this for their Senate votes. So when I say Morrison is allowing chaos to reign instead of showing leadership, this is what I'm talking about. That, the, the lack of leadership, the hollow nature of his prime ministerial reign has allowed this to explode effectively. Uh, you know, people talk about Senate voting reform and changing group tickets and doing all this sort of stuff. At the end of the day, structurally, you can do different things to make it more or less democratic. And we've done that over the entire course of our federation. And the last set of Senate reforms made it less democratic. And I don't want to revisit the structural things here today. Because I got so upset. And thank you, Ben. It's still very sore for me that that happened. at the end of the day... I don't think if you're creating a system (laughs) that makes it easier for Pauline Hanson to get elected, that that's good. I think that's bad. I think that's bad too. I do think that's bad. But I think at the end of the day... The culture, the political culture that you allow within your own party, within the group of people who you supposedly lead, is 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 more important. It is a bigger issue. Because let me tell you this, any, anybody who's who's been involved in business or done an MBA or done any kind of um, uh, commerce studies or anything like that, you know, you'll have heard... You'll have heard somebody at some point say this, and that is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that's... That's true across the board in everything. Culture eats strategy for breakfast because that's what we have now. We have a political culture that is eating away at the strategy of having a more democratic society. And having a government that actually governs. And that's what gets to me. Like, I just, I'm ready. Like, I'm ready for... Well, I think the Australian people are ready as well. You know, I just, (laughs) I'm just ready for the big, for the change. 
I'm ready to build the infrastructure of climate action. Like I'm ready for the new jobs and the new initiatives and educational policy that's cradle to grave. You know, I'm ready for an expansion in aged care, one that I, as a carer, can find complements complements what my mother wants to do with her life yeah. now that she's elderly. Not one that simply makes profits for offshore corporations. Or, de- or denigrates her and treats her like a burden on yeah. the system. You know, like like many Australians who are now dealing with the, the whole aged care thing, like there are inefficiencies that are built into this system, like organisational inefficiencies, mm. like these really long waiting periods um, to get help and to get support and all those things, which are essentially inefficient to, you know, wait until people pop off this mortal yeah. coil before they access services, Look, which I find inherently immoral. Oh, it is inherently immoral. And you talk to anybody who's tried to access aged care or the NDIS or a disability support pension or or childcare, and it's, it's systems designed to discourage people from participation and cultures that are inherently reinforcing that as well then i want to briefly give a shout out to on the job the australian unions podcast we love them francis leach and sally rugg they interviewed you this week about your book q and they did i had a great chat with francis can i just say like i love francis leach he was the host of three hours of power on triple j when i was um you know younger a younger person, a younger person with a particular taste for heavier kind yeah. of musical sound. And it was just, I was just sitting there at one point going, talking about my book with the guy from Three Hours of Power. This is awesome. <laughs> but of course, On the Job is the official Australian Union's podcast. They do interview a lot of frontline workers. And I guess in this case, you know, you've been on the front line uh, of working the, the, the conspiracy theories, getting an understanding of that. So people should check out your interview with them. Van Batam Loon Hunter. <laughs> they should check out your interview. Check out their back catalogue as well. They've interviewed some amazing frontline workers, particularly during the pandemic. Um, if you ever find yourself going, oh, maybe the anti-vaxxers have a point, just listen to some of those interviews with frontline health workers, frontline care workers, and, and you just change your mind because they absolutely nail what it's really like you know it's easy for people working from home or people who maybe are on furlough or or getting job keeper or something to kind of maybe have a have a skewed view of what it's really like talk to those frontline healthcare workers and they'll tell you um van i think we need some good news because we've we've talked about some grim political realities here and look i'm one piece of good news is there's an election not far away, so we can we can all start to see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Maybe we should do a things you can do election special. Yeah. Like a pre-election special and talk about all the different active if there's an appetite for this, about the ways you can be engaged as an activist and what that means. Um, let us know on any of our social media channels and we might do a pre-election special. And of course, the thing that I always come back to, Van, is join your union. Oh man, the that's first the first thing, one. The first thing you should do is join your union because unions have for the entire history of the Federation and Commonwealth of Australia been at the forefront of improving workers' rights and using the political system to make that happen, showing up, boots on the ground, doing the work. Now, I'm not saying if you join a union, they're going to conscript you into doing all the election work. I'm saying that if you want to be involved, that that opportunity is there and afforded to you through unions. Because it wasn't that long ago, you had to be 
literally a rich man to participate in the political system. That's true. You had to be a rich man. And unions Ugh. unions are the mechanism by Ugh. which that homogenous uh, hegemony has been broken up. Hegemony. Hegemony. No, I'm a bogan. We say it hegemony. Because bogans say the word hegemony all the time. I say hege- he- yeah, right. hegemony. Hegemony. Yeah, well, it's a posh, posh English private school thing. But no. The point is... Join your union and decide how you say hegemony for yourself. Tell us some good. Tell us some good news, Van. I understand the very fine people of Washington D.C. are doing something which some of us might view as slightly ironic, given it is the global capital of democratic politics. What are they doing with their sewage, Van? See, I would say Brussels was. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's because you know. Because I'm Eurocentric. Eurocentric. Um, thermal hydrolysis. Oh, and for those playing along at home and for Germanicus, who maybe doesn't understand that term. Who might be having a very cute nap <laughs> on the floor. What does that mean? Uh, it's a way of processing poo. Wow. So To do what, though? Like- to turn it into fertiliser. It's totally amazing. Amazing. It's totally amazing. So Washington, D.C. recycles all their poo into fertiliser. Sewage. Yes. So they have the largest advanced water treatment plant in the world there. And, of course, one of the problems with, you know, modernity is soil degradation, like yes. forms of agriculture which have totally just denuded soil layers and stripped minerals and, you know, made what used to be arable land, like, unfarmable, um, needs to be treated with fertiliser that has heaps of nitrogen and yep. slow-release nitrogen. Anybody who's done their veggie patch will know you've got to have the right compost and the right fertiliser. Yeah, and so Washington, D.C. is recycling their sewerage into a product they call Bloom through this process called um, thermal hydrolysis where they heat it, they heat it up and they break it down and they do all this stuff to it. And, yeah, and they are using it as an agricultural product and apparently it's like a totally superior Fertilizer, and it's just they. It it came about because they wanted to think about the 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 engineers and the policymakers who worked on this that have created this amazing mm. piece of infrastructure. They were like, we've got to start looking at waste as resources. Like what waste is is an unused resource. So yeah. what are byproducts? What can you do with byproducts? How can something that we produce be reproduced and reused and redeployed to solve another problem? And it's like I'm so all over that thinking because in a lot of places treated sewage just goes into landfill. Yeah. And that is a waste. You're taking a resource that could be fertilizer that could, you know, restock soil health. Yeah. And grow tomatoes and vegetables and everything else. And that's what they're doing. You know, um, somebody was saying on Twitter the other day, who's somebody who gives you hope in the world? The world's full of terrible information. And I've got to say, I love doing the good news story at the end of the week on Wednesday every week because I get to sit down with my magazines and journals and find some environmental scientists or policymakers or just, you know, community environmentalists who are doing something awesome. And I just want to say a shout out to all of those people and go, if you've got an idea that can save just one tiny pixel of the world, like whether it's processing poo in Washington or rebuilding dirigibles or, you know, amazing solar farms or any of the things we've talked about, about. I love you yeah. and I respect your work and thank God you exist. And can I just say too, that very often, you know, the news, I saw a news break the other day, you know, one of those ones that's an ad in the ad break. And I think two of the stories were about cars on fire 
you know, and the news is full of that kind of stuff, you know, and there's lots of negative important stories but often negative and then like you know a car on fire look at this flaming picture if it bleeds it leads if it bleeds it leads but the these kind of stories these are people doing the work you know they're trying to make the world a better place they are making the world a better place they're often ignored by the news it's so easy to kind of skim over that there's lots of really good positive things you know a reader sent me the other day a great story about uh, it was happening in Turkey right. and they were building solar panels as pavements and they were using recycled plastic to build tiles for pavement that were solar panels and that, you know, in parts of the world, various forms of architecture are unsuitable for solar panels on the yeah. roof for whatever yeah. reason. But the- yeah, You're not going to put solar panels on the Hagia Sophia, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> So, no, you, you're not. But, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good example, right? Because a lot of the news we get out of Turkey when you're in Australia is pretty negative. Like, you know, Erdogan's not exactly Mr. Nice Guy. No. There's not... Nor prioritises democracy in any way. Right, so... Not a fan of a free press. Kind of a bad guy. But it's important for us to remember that even in those kind of conditions, even in places where we would think, oh, that's not really a great place, lots of negative things going on, there are still people who are committed to improving the world in which we live. Like, I think it was last week I talked about the refugee camp. Absolutely. Where they have reforested this massive area and done it really quickly. And it gives me it gives me such hope. Like, you know, we... Yeah, it just gives me such hope. Oh, I just want this country to get moving. I just want to do stuff. I just want us to reforest and revegetate and have regenerative agriculture and solar panels and wind farms and all of this scientific stuff that we haven't even thought about yet because of declining education budgets and the rest of us. And I'm just like, the potential, the potential in Australia and Australians to do such great things. Like, just... Let it happen. Well, I think it's a question of not less government, but a better government. And I think it's not a question of can-do capitalism. I think it's a question... Can-do community. Can-do community. I like that. That's a good one. We are are can-do communities in this country. We've shown that. Tripartite economic plan. Again and again and again. Superannuation. Can-do. Business and unions coming together. Medicare. Medicare. Through the pandemic, communities came together. Neighbours who we hadn't met, we met for the first time under the most extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And there are stories like that all across the country. And this idea that somehow or another we should all go back into our homes and retreat back into the cave and just and be, be miserable at work and, and just be not a, participate in our community and just be a credit card online propping up an, an economic system. I mean, that's really negative to me. That's the negative approach. But anyway, we we have gone over time, uh, as we tend to do when we're together, because we just I just enjoy talking with you. Got to say, it's pretty nice to be home. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty lovely. nice to be home. It's lovely. Um, we are both smiling. <laughs> so, I just want everybody to know, even when we're like, ah, the government, boo, we're still probably smiling because we're together. That's right. That's right. That's another good news story for today. That's the best news story ever. So... Thank you so much for listening. Congratulations to everybody who's made the week on Wednesday such a success. I got to say, I never expected that we would be a consistently, you know, top 10, top 20 news podcast in Australia, you know, top three political podcast. It's all happened because of you, the listener. It's because you share this. It's because you like it. It's because you talk about it. You engage with it. Please do keep doing that. Do keep coming back to us with issues you want us to talk about. 
I, I apologize to everyone who I haven't got back to. If you haven't heard from us, do keep checking the social media channels. Sometimes you'll send me something and it'll just make its way into the show and you won't even know about it because I haven't had time to get back to you about it, but it's in the show. Keep listening, keep engaging. Don't forget to join your union. There are many, many things. Don't forget to buy Van's book, by the way. If you want to support the show in a really tangible way, <laughs> buy the book. Um, don't worry. We, we don't get the full sticker price. That's not, that's not the transaction. I get the same wherever it's sold. There are lots of people who go into making a book and all of them deserve to be paid. Absolutely. So support Australian printing and publishing. And this is a thing. My book was printed in Australia. A lot of books aren't. Yep. And by buying my book, you will be encouraging those print jobs to stay in the community. Awesome. So you've really got to buy it. I mean, that's right. Responsibility. That's right. That's the week on Wednesday. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. It's so good to be home. Bye. Bye.